third circle. Life, health, and love are precarious. Why should work be an exception? No question is more confused in France than the question of work. No relation is more disfigured than the one between the French and work. Go to Andalusia, to Algeria, to Naples. They despise work profoundly. Go to Germany, the United States, to Japan. They revere work. Things are changing, it's true. There are plenty of otaku in Japan. Fro Arbitlos in Germany and workaholics in Andalusia. But for the time being, these are only curiosities. In France, we get down on all fours to climb the ladders of hierarchy, but privately flatter ourselves that we don't really give a shit. We stay at work until 10 o'clock in the evening when we're swamped, but we've never had any scruples about stealing office supplies here and there, or carting off the inventory in order to resell it later. We hate bosses. But we want to be employed at any cost. To have a job is an honor, yet working is a sign of servility. In short, the perfect clinical illustration of hysteria. We love while hating. We hate while loving. And we all know the stupor and confusion that strike the hysteric when he loses his victim, his master. Most of the time, he never recovers. This neurosis is the foundation upon which successive governments could declare war on joblessness, pretending to wage a, quote, battle on unemployment, unquote, while ex-managers camped with their cell phones in Red Cross shelters along the banks of the Seine, while the Department of Labor was massively manipulating its statistics in order to bring unemployment numbers below 2 million, while welfare checks and drug dealing were the only guarantees, as the French state has recognized, against the possibility of social unrest at each and every moment. It's the psychic economy of the French as much as the political stability of the country that is at stake in the maintenance of the workerist fiction. Excuse us if we don't give a fuck. We belong to a generation that lives very well in this fiction. That has never counted on either a pension or the right to work, let alone, let alone rights at work. That isn't even precarious, as the most advanced factions of the militant left like to theorize, because to be precarious is still to define oneself in relation to the sphere of work, that is, to its decomposition. We accept the necessity of finding money, by whatever means, because it is currently impossible to do without it, but we reject the necessity of working. Besides, we don't work anymore. We do our time. Business is not a place where we exist. It's a place we pass through. We aren't cynical. We are just reluctant to be deceived. All these discourses on motivation, quality, and personal investment pass us by to the great dismay of human resources managers. They say we are disappointed by business, that it fails to honor our parents' loyalty, that it let them go too quickly. They are lying. To be disappointed, one must have hoped for something, and we have never hoped for anything from business. We see it for what it is and for what it has always been, a fool's game of varying degrees of comfort. Our, on behalf of our parents, our only regret is that they fell into the trap, at least the ones who believed. 
The sentimental confusion that surrounds the question of work can be explained thus. The notion of work has always included two contradictory dimensions, a dimension of exploitation and a dimension of participation. Exploitation of individual and collective labor power through the private or social appropriation of surplus value. Participation in a common effort through the relations linking those who cooperate at the heart of the universe of production. These two dimensions are perversely confused in the notion of work, which explains workers' indifference at the end of the day to both Marxist rhetoric, which denies the dimension of participation, and managerial rhetoric, which denies the dimension of exploitation. Hence, the ambivalence of the relation of work, which is shameful insofar as it makes us strangers to what we are doing, and at the same time adored insofar as a part of ourselves is brought into play. The disaster has already occurred. It resides in everything that had to be destroyed, and all those who had to be uprooted in order for work to end up as the only way of existing. The horror of work is less in the work itself than in the methodical ravaging for centuries of all that isn't work. The familiarities of one's neighborhood and trade, of one's village, of struggle, of kinship, are attachment to places, to beings, to the seasons, to ways of doing and speaking. Here lies the present paradox. Work has totally triumphed over all other ways of existing at the very moment where workers have become superfluous. Gains in productivity, outsourcing, mechanization, automated and digital production have so progressed that they have almost reduced to zero the quantity of living labor necessary in the manufacture of any product. We are living the paradox of a society of workers without work, where entertainment, consumption, and leisure only underscore the lack from which they are supposed to distract us. The mind in karma, famous for a century of violent strikes, has now been reconverted into Cape Discovery. It's an entertainment multiplex for skateboarding and biking, distinguished by a mining museum in which methane blasts are simulated for vacationers. In corporations, work is divided in an increasingly visible way into highly skilled positions of research, conception, control, coordination, and communication, which deploy all the knowledge necessary for the new cybernetic production process, and unskilled positions for the maintenance and surveillance of this process. The first are few in number, very well paid and thus so coveted that the minority who occupy these positions will do anything to avoid losing them. They and their work are effectively bound in one anguished embrace. Managers, scientists, lobbyists, researchers, programmers, developers, consultants, and engineers literally never stop working. Even their sex lives serve to augment productivity. A human resources philosopher writes, quote, The most creative businesses are the ones with the greatest number of intimate relations. Business associates, a Daimler-Benz human resource manager confirms, are an important part of the business's capital. Their motivation, their know-how, their capacity to innovate, and their attention to clients' desires 
constitute, constitute the raw material of innovative services. Their behavior, their social and emotional competence, are a growing factor in the evaluation of their work. This will no longer be evaluated in terms of number of hours on the job, but on the basis of objectives attained and quality of results. They are entrepreneurs. Unquote. The series of tasks that can't be delegated to automation by a nebulous cluster of jobs that, because they cannot be occupied by machines, are occupied by any old human, warehousemen, stock people, assembly line workers, seasonal workers, etc. This flexible, undifferentiated workforce that moves from one task to the next and never stays long in a business can no longer even consolidate itself as a force, being outside the center of the production process and employed to plug the holes of what has not yet been mechanized, as if pulverized in a multitude of interstices. The temp is the figure of the worker who is no longer a worker, who no longer has a trade, but only abilities that he sells where he can, and whose very availability is also a kind of work. On the margins of this workforce that is effective and necessary for the functioning of the machine is a growing majority that has become superfluous, that is certainly useful to the flow of production, but not much else, which introduces the risk that, in its idleness, it will set about sabotaging the machine. The menace of a general demobilization is a specter that haunts the present system of production. Not everyone responds to the question, why work, in the same way as this ex-welfare recipient. For my well-being, I have to keep myself busy. There is a serious risk that we will end up funding, finding a job in our very idleness. This floating population must somehow be kept occupied, but to this day they have not found a better disciplinary method than wages. It is therefore necessary to pursue the dismantling of social gains so that the most restless ones, those who will only surrender when faced with the alternatives between dying of hunger or stagnating in jail, are lured back to the bosom of wage labor. The burgeoning slave trade in personal services must continue. Cleaning, catering, massage, domestic nursing, sex work, tutoring, therapy, psychological aid, etc. This is accompanied by a continual raising of the standards of security, hygiene, control, and culture, and by an accelerated recycling of fashions, all of which establish the need for such services. And Rowan we now have human parking meters, someone who waits around on the street and delivers you your parking slip, and, if it's raining, will even rent you an umbrella. The order of work was the order of a world. The evidence of its ruin is paralyzing to those who dread what will come after. Today's work, today work is tied less to the economic necessity of producing goods than to the political necessity of producing producers and consumers, and of preserving by any means necessary the order of work. Producing oneself is becoming the dominant occupation of a society where production no longer has an object, like a carpenter who has been evicted from his shop and in desperation sets about hammering and sawing himself. 
All these young people, smiling for their job interviews, who have their teeth whitened and give them an edge, who go to nightclubs to boost the company's spirit, who learn English to advance their careers, who get divorced or married to move up the ladder, who take courses in leadership or practice self-improvement in order to better, quote, manage conflicts. The most intimate self-improvement, says one guru, will lead to increased emotional stability, to smoother and more open relationships, to sharper intellectual focus, and therefore to a better economic performance. This swarming little crowd that waits impatiently to be hired while doing whatever it can to seem natural is a result of an attempt to rescue the order of work, though through an ethos of mobility. To be mobilized is to lay to work not as an activity, but as a possibility. If the unemployed person removes his piercings, goes to the barber, and keeps himself busy with projects, if he really works on his employability, as they say, it's because this is how he demonstrates his mobility. Mobility is this slight detachment from the self, this minimal disconnection from what constitutes us, this condition of strangeness whereby the self can now be taken up as an object of work, and it now becomes possible to sell oneself rather than one's labor power, to be remunerated not for what one does, but but for what one is, for our exquisite mastery of social codes, for our relational talents, for our smile, and our way of presenting ourselves. This is the new standard of socialization. Mobility brings about a fusion of two contradictory poles of work. Here we participate in our own exploitation, and all participation is exploited. Ideally, you are yourself a little business, your own boss, your own product. Whether one is working or not, it's a question of generating contacts, abilities, networking, in short, human capital. The planetary injunction to mobilize the slightest pretext, cancer, quote, terrorism, an earthquake, the homeless, sums up the reigning power's determination to maintain the reign of work beyond its physical disappearance. The present production apparatus is therefore, on the one hand, a gigantic machine for psychic and physical mobilization, for sucking the energy of humans that had become superfluous, and on the other hand, it is a sorting machine that allocates survival to conform subjectivities and rejects all problem individuals, all those who embody another use of life, and in this way, resist it. On the one hand, ghosts are brought to life, and on the other, the living are left to die. This is the properly political function of the contemporary production apparatus. To organize beyond and against work, to collectively desert the regime of mobility, to demonstrate the existence of a vitality and discipline, discipline precisely in demobilization is a crime for which a civilization on its knees is not about to forgive us. In fact, it's the only way to survive it. Fourth circle. More simple, more fun, more mobile, more secure. We've heard enough about the city and the country, and particularly about the supposed ancient opposition between the two. 
From up close, or from afar, what surrounds us looks nothing like that. It is one single urban cloth, without form or order, a bleak zone, endless and undefined, a global, global continuum of museum-like city centers and natural parks, of enormous suburban housing developments and massive agricultural projects, industrial zones and subdivisions, country inns and trendy bars, the metropolis. Certainly the ancient city existed, as did the cities of medieval and modern times, but there is no such thing as a metropolitan city. All territory is synthesized within the modern, the metropolis. Everything occupies the same space, if not geographically, then through the intermeshing of its networks. It's because the city has finally disappeared that it has now become fetishized as history. The factory buildings of Lille became concert halls. The rebuilt concrete core of Le Havre is now a UNESCO World Heritage Sire. In Beijing, the hutongs surrounded by, surrounding the Forbidden City were demolished, replaced by fake versions, placed a little farther out and on display for sightseers. And in Troyes, they pasted half-timber facades onto cinderblock buildings, a type of pastiche that resembles the Victorian shops at Disneyland Paris more than anything else. The old historic centers, once hotbeds of revolutionary sedition, are now wisely integrated into the organizational diagram of the metropolis. They've been given over to tourism and conspicuous consumption. They are the fairy tale commodity islands, propped up by their expos and decorations, and by force if necessary. The oppressive sentimentality of every Christmas village is offset by ever more security guards and city patrols. Control has a wonderful way of integrating itself into the commodity landscape, showing its authoritarian face to anyone who wants to see it. It's an age of fusions, of muzak, telescoping police batons, and cotton candy, equal part police surveillance and enchantment. This taste for the, quote, authentic, and for the control that goes with it, is carried out by the petty bourgeois, through their colonizing drives into working-class neighborhoods. Pushed out of the city centers, they find on the frontiers the kind of, quote, neighborhood feeling they missed in the prefab houses of suburbia. In chasing out the poor people, the cars, and the immigrants, and making it tidy, and getting rid of all the germs, the petty bourgeois pulverizes the very thing it came looking for. A police officer and a garbage man shake hands in a picture on a town billboard, and the slogan reads, Montalban, clean city. The same sense of decency that obliges urbanists to stop speaking of the city when they destroyed and instead to talk of the urban should compel them also to drop country since it no longer exists. The uprooted and stressed out masses are instead thrown, shown a country, countryside, a vision of the past that's easy to stage now that the country folk have been so depleted. It is a marketing campaign, deployed on a territory in which everything must be valorized or reconstituted as national heritage. Everywhere it's the same chilling void, reaching even into even the most remote and rustic corners. The metropolis of, is the simultaneous death of city and country. It is the crossroads where all the petty bourgeois come together 
in the middle of the, this middle class that stretches out indefinitely, as much as the result of rural flight as of urban sprawl. To cover the planet with glass would fit perfectly the cynicism of contemporary architecture. A school, a hospital, or a media center are all variations on the same theme, transparency, neutrality, uniformity. These massive, fluid buildings are conceived without any need to know what they will house. They could be here as much as anywhere else. What to do with all the office towers at La Défense in Paris, the apartment blocks of Léon de Pardieu, or shopping complexes of Euralil, the expression flambant neuf perfectly captures their destiny. A Scottish traveler testifies to the unique attraction of the power of fire, speaking after rebels had burned the Hotel de Ville in Paris in May 1871. Quote, Never could I have imagined anything so beautiful. It's superb. I wouldn't deny that the people of the commune are frightful rogues, but what artists? And they were not even aware of their own masterpiece. I have seen the ruins of Amalfi bathed in the azure swells of the Mediterranean, and the ruins of the Tung Hoor temples in Punjab. I've seen Rome and many other things, but nothing can compare to what I've seen here tonight before my very eyes. Unquote. There still remains some fresh fragments of the city and some traces of the country caught up in the metropolitan mesh but vitality has taken up quarters in the so-called problem neighborhoods. It's a paradox that the places thought to be the most uninhabitable turn out to be the only ones still in some way inhabited. An old squatted shack still feels more lived in than the so-called luxury apartments, where it is only possible to set down the furniture and get the decor just right while waiting for the next move. Within many of today's megalopolis, megalopolises, the shanty towns are the last living and livable areas, and also, of course, the most deadly. They are the flip side of the electronic decor of the global metropolis. The dormitory towers in the suburbs north of Paris, abandoned by a petty bourgeoisie that went off hunting for swimming pools, have been brought back to life by mass unemployment and now radiate more energy than the Latin Quarter, in words as much as fire. The conflagration of November 2005 was not a result of extreme dispossession, as it is often portrayed. It was, on the contrary, a complete possession of a territory. People can burn cars because they are pissed off, but to keep the riots going for a month while keeping the police in check, to do that, you know, have to know how to organize. You have to establish complicities. You have to know the terrain perfectly and share a common language and a common enemy. Mile after mile, and week after week, the fires spread, and new blazes responded to the original ones, appearing where they were least expected. Rumors can't be wiretapped. The metropolis is a terrain of constant low-intensity conflict, in which the taking of Basra, Mogadishu, and Nablu mark points of culmination. For a long time, the city was a place for the military to avoid, or if anything, to besiege, but the metropolis is perfectly compatible with war. Armed conflict is only, a, is only a moment in its constant reconfiguration. The battle bled by the great powers resemble a kind of never-ending police work in the black holes of the metropolis. 
quote, whether in Burkina Faso, in the South Bronx, in Kamagaski, in Chiapas, or in La Cornevu, unquote, no longer undertaken in view of victory or peace, or even the reestablishment of order. Such interventions continue a security operation that is always at work, always already at work. War is no longer a distinct event in time, but instead diffracts into a series of micro-operations, both by military and police, to ensure security. The police and the army are evolving into parallel and in lockstep. A criminologist requests that the National Riot Police reorganize itself into small, professionalized, mobile units. The military academy, cradle of disciplinary methods, is rethinking its own hierarchical organization. For its infantry battalion, a NATO officer employs a, quote, participatory method that involves everyone in the analysis, preparation, execution, and evaluation of an action. The plan is considered and reconsidered for days, right through the training phase and according to the latest intelligence. There is nothing like group planning for building team cohesion and morale, unquote. The armed forces don't simply adapt themselves to the metropolis. They produce it. Thus, since the battles of Neblu, Israeli soldiers have become interior designers. Forced by Palestinian guerrillas to abandon the streets, which had become too dangerous, they learned to advance vertically and horizontally as the heart of the urban architecture, poking holes in walls and ceilings in order to move through them. An officer in the Israeli Defense Forces and a graduate in philosophy explains, quote, the enemy interprets space in a traditional classical manner, and I do not want to obey this interpretation and fall into his traps. I want to surprise him. This is the essence of war. I need to win. This is why we opted for the methodology of moving through walls, like a worm that eats its way forward. End quote. Urban space is more than just a theater of confrontation. It is also the means. This echoes the advice of Blanquin, who recommended, in this case for the party of insurrection, that the future insurgents of Paris take over the houses on the barricaded streets to protect their positions, that they should bore holes in the walls to allow passage between houses, break down the ground floor stairwells, and poke holes in the ceilings to defend themselves against potential attackers, rip out the doors, and use them to barricade the windows, and turn each floor into a gun turret. The metropolis is not just this urban pileup, this final collision between city and country. It is also a flow of beings and things, a current that runs through fiber optic networks, through high-speed train lines, satellites, and video surveillance cameras, making sure that this world never stops running straight to its ruin. It is a current that would like to drag everything along in, in its hopeless mobility, to mobilize each and every one of us where information pummels us like some kind of hostile force, where the only thing left to do is run, where it becomes hard to wait, even for the umpteenth subway train. With the proliferation of means of movement and communication, and with the lore of always being elsewhere, we are continuously torn from the here and now. Hop on an intercity or commuter train, pick up a telephone, in order to be already gone. Such mobility only ever means uprootedness, isolation, exile. It would be insufferable if it weren't always the mobility of a private space, of a portable interior. 
the private bubble doesn't burst. It floats around. The process of cocooning is not going away. It is merely being put into motion. From a train station to an office park to a commercial bank, from one hotel to another, there is everywhere a foreignness and a feeling so banal and so habitual it becomes the last form of familiarity. Metropolitan excess is this capricious mixing of definite moods indefinitely recombined. The city centers of the metropolis are not clones of themselves, but offer instead their own auras. We glide from one to the next, selecting this one and rejecting that one, to the tune of a kind of existential shopping trip among different styles of bars, people, designs, or playlists. With my MP3 player, I'm master of my world. To cope with the uniformity that surrounds us, our only option is to constantly renovate our interior world, like a child who constructs the same little house over and over again, or like Robinson Crusoe, reproducing his shopkeeper's universe on a desert island. Yet our desert island is civilization itself, and there are billions of us continually washing up on it. It is precisely due to this architecture of flows that the metropolis is one of the most vulnerable human arrangements that has ever existed. Supple, subtle, but vulnerable. A brutal shutting down of borders to fend off a raging epidemic, a sudden interruption of supply lines, organized blockades of the axes of communication, and the whole facade crumbles, a facade that can no longer mask the scenes of carnage haunting it from morning to night. The world would not be moving so fast if it didn't have to constantly outrun its own collapse. The metropolis aims to shelter itself from inevitable malfunction via its network structure, via its entire technology infrastructure of nodes and connections, its decentralized architecture. The internet is supposed to survive a nuclear attack. Permanent control of the flow of information, people, and products makes the mobility of the metropolis secure, while its tracking systems ensure that no shipping containers get lost, and that not a single dollar is stolen in any transaction, and that no terrorist ends up on an airplane. All thanks to an RFID chip, a biometric passport, a DNA profile. But the metropolis also produces the means of its own destruction. An American security expert explains the defeat in Iraq as a result of the guerrilla's ability to take advantages of new ways of communicating. The U.S. invasion didn't so much import democracies to Iraq as it did cybernetic networks. They brought them with one of, five, one of the weapons of their own defeat. The proliferation of mobile phones and internet access points gave the guerrillas newfound ways to self-organize and allowed them to become such elusive targets. Every network has its weak points, the nodes that must be undone in order to interrupt circulation to unwind the web. The last great European electrical blackout proved it. A single incident with a high-tension wire and decent part of the con- continent was plunged into darkness. In order for something to rise up in the midst of the metropolis and open up other possibilities, the first act must be to interrupt its perpetuum mobile. That is what the Thai rebels understood while they knocked out electrical stations. That is what the French anti-CPE protesters understood in 2006 when they shut down the universities with a view toward shutting down the entire economy. That is what the American longshoremen understood when they struck on October 2002 in support of 300 jobs blocking the main ports on the west coast for 10 days. 
The American economy is so dependent on goods coming from Asia that the cost of the blockade was over a billion dollars per day. With 10,000 people, the largest economic power in the world can be brought to its knees. According to certain, quote, experts, if the action had lasted another month, it would have produced, quote, a recession in the United States and an economic nightmare in Southeast Asia.